Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We just don't know about the U.S. elections, about inflation, and goodness knows about cryptocurrencies. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on the good, the bad, and the ugly of U.S. elections. I'm quite encouraged. Uh, the center is holding. And Glenn Hubbard of Columbia on a Republican plan for building an economy for sustainable growth. An awful lot happened this week, but it's not yet clear what it all meant. The U.S. held those much-anticipated midterm elections, and instead of a big red wave, we got what amounted to a little red ripple. The red wave didn't happen, and instead we're going to have more divided government. With the full consequences still up in the air. How do you get things done with a Republican House and equally evenly divided uh, Senate? And Biden's president. We also got consumer price numbers for the United States. They were good, coming in lower than expected on both the headline and the core numbers. But they left us wondering whether this was the beginning of inflation's end or a false dawn. A significant improvement in the data that wasn't expected by the markets. And then we come to the wonderful land of cryptocurrencies. The so-called emperor of crypto got dethroned. Sam Bankman-Fried had to turn over the keys to his FTX kingdom to his arch rival, Zhao Qingping, only to have him promptly give them back. 
And then, as the week ended, the other shoe dropped. SBF resigned as CEO as FTX filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, leaving questions about the broader crypto industry. One of the people that are kind of a, you know, larger speakers in this industry had said that we were looking for contagion in the industry. This is the contagion. But if the rest of us had some doubts about this week, the markets sure didn't share those doubts. The markets took one look at those CPI numbers and never looked back. With the S&P 500 up 5.9% on the week, its best week since June, the Nasdaq up a whopping 8.1%, and bonds very much in demand with the yield on the 10-year falling 35 basis points over the course of the week. Here to take us through what they saw in this dramatic market turn are Lori Calvacina. She's head of U.S. equity strategy for RBC Capital Markets and David Bianco, he's Chief Investment Officer at DWS. So welcome back, both of you. Good to have you here. David, let me start with you. What did you make of this week? It was such a dramatic turnaround on Thursday. Should we believe it? I would not. I would take it with a grain of salt. Uh, what a week it was, the, the midterm elections and the inflation report. And let's not forget Veterans Day. Um, without our vets, a big thanks to them. There wouldn't be peace. Uh, the inflation report stole the, the limelight, though, for the week. And, and arguably, I don't think it, it should have. It's just one data point. And while it's very welcome that inflation's come down from the highs, uh, it still seems broad-based. And uh, particularly broad-based in services, which suggests the labor market is still extremely tight. I'd argue that we see narrow disinflation at goods, apparel, used cars, and still broad-based uh, service inflation. So I, I, I think inflation is still, still a risk. And I just remind people that in October 2021, inflation was about 6% back then. And so it's still about over 6% on a core basis now. That's a lot of inflation over the past two years. No, that's a really good point. I mean, we, we like to focus on how much has come down. It has come down some finally, but it's still at a very high level. And do we have any assurance it's going to keep coming down at a fairly brisk level to get us down to 2% or thereabout? Well, look, I think it's all about where the numbers come in versus expectations. And if you look at street consensus, they're already baking in pretty significant moderation, you know, kind of heading back to 3% next year. So I think it was, you know, not surprising to me to see such a fierce reaction in markets. Maybe not. I didn't expect quite as much as what we got. Uh, but I can tell you, David, I've talked to a lot of investors the last few weeks who have really, you know, kind of quietly arguing it was getting ready to come down, building their models, um, and, you know, had gotten fooled by this, you know, several times in the past when it didn't happen. And I think there was just tremendous relief that this kind of idea that inflation is moderating, that it, it, we finally got the data to cooperate. It's moderating for one data point, Laurie, yeah. but we've had the chair of the Fed say again and again and again, I need more than one data point. Yeah. I need quite a few data points before I'm really going to believe it. So do we think this is actually going to change better? Fed behavior at this point? Well, I, you know, unfortunately, I think that the Fed probably didn't like the reaction that we saw on Thursday, and I wouldn't be surprised to see the rhetoric, you know, take another, you know, kind of hawkish tone to try to clamp down enthusiasm. Um, I think things are going to stay choppy for quite some time. You know, let's enjoy the day while it lasts. It was a nice week. Uh, you know, we, we've been in need of a nice week in the equity market, um, but I wouldn't, you know, necessarily expect this to go up in a straight line from here. David, I wonder, are the markets basically baking in, really getting back down, if not to 2%, to sort of 2.5%, 3%? Are they a little complacent, particularly yeah. bond markets? I think the markets are complacent. It's, it's interesting how the bond market also yields fell upon the inflation report, and maybe that's all that equities need to know. Um, but yes, investors expect inflation to come down. But at this stage, we can't keep saying eventually. It's important that the Fed or other factors get inflation down quickly because we're looking on the verge of inflation, of inflation becoming a multi-year problem. And if high inflation is a multi-year problem, 
problem, that might change the entire inflation risk premium demanded by the bond market. So I think we're very lucky that the bond market is staying calm about inflation so far. We shouldn't press our luck. So uh, clearly the CPI drove the markets this week. Mm -hmm. uh, they drowned out any news about the midterms. Was that right, David? Did we pay enough attention, do you think, the markets to the midterms? Well, you know, Laurie and I were talking. It seemed like investors were trying to f uh, follow some game plan they had in mind about how the market would rally post-midterm elections. A Republican red wave didn't happen. Uh, hopefully the, the, the inflation report wasn't a surprise uh, negatively. It was positively. Uh, but uh, I, I think this has gone too far too fast. And I think they did put too much in emphasis on the inflation report, trying to ignore the midterm elections, which are you know, still uncertain. Laurie Calvacina and David Bianco will be staying with us as we turn from what happened this week to how to invest around it next week and the week after, for that matter. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. a disillusioned American electorate quite plainly sternly reassessed the empty promises of 1992 and concluded unmistakably that the incumbent administration not only had presented itself in false economic colors as something new rather than an all-too-familiar throwback to the 1960s, but had been seriously off base and way out of touch with the changing times, Bill Clinton has been campaigning from the start against the 1980s. This week, the 80s won. 
That, of course, was Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street Week back in 1994 when a different president's first midterm election ended in a repudiation of his economic program. And the number one movie in America was Interview with the Vampire, while the number one song was I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. What a difference 38 <laughs> years makes. Some people expected a similar rejection of President Biden's economic plans, but they didn't get it as the two parties fought to essentially a draw. And the Democrats are on a path to losing fewer midterm seats than any party in power in 20 years. Still with us are David Bianco of DWS and Lori Cavasina of RBC. So let me, let me come back to you, Lori, for a second. Let's talk about how you invest around what we're seeing right now. Given what's going on in the CPI, given some of the uncertainties about inflation, and for that matter, geopolitics, how do you make investment decisions in this climate? So I think you still have to stick with the longer-term trajectory, you know, kind of where you see the most opportunities longer-term. Um, I think that there is still a real case to be made for switching from the kind of new economy back to the old economy areas like industrials, energy, financials. A lot of these areas still have very, very good valuations. I think on the more growthy side of the market, I think you want to be more selective. So we obviously saw things like communication services. A lot of the tech companies really rallied pretty fiercely over the last couple days. Um, I think you still want to be careful there. Um, so we like tech. We like things like software. We like things like semis, which look pretty washed out on earnings sentiment. Um, but we'd be a little bit more cautious with some of the internet-related names. But to draw a football analogy, that sounds like running off tackle three yards instead of throwing a long ball. That you're not really betting on a lot of big growth in the near term. I think so. I think so. And you know what we see when we look at different economic forecasts is the price we're likely to pay for a short, shallow recession is subpar economic growth that follows. So think of something like half a percent, one percent. Um, that is an environment in which valuation will matter. So, so David, what do you think of that? I mean, is this a time to really dial it back some? What are you interested in as an investment opportunity? Well, toward the latter parts of this week, we've gotten more you know, defensively positioned. Um, I do think that we have a small recession next year, and I do believe it hits profits. Profits would be flat at best, probably down 5%. I think Lori's down a little bit more than that in her estimate. So the S&P's at 18, 19 times forward earnings. And, you know, even though it's just, a, in our view, a, a short and shallow recession ahead, I think there's going to be more frequent recessions than we've been accustomed to in the past 20, 30 years during the 2020s, and also inflation a little bit more sticky. I, I love these clips, the 1994 after that midterm election. I mean, that's when, when Clinton pivoted, and it's also when the Republicans uh, had strong messaging and, and policy suggestions, and uh, a long period of economic growth and declining inflation for uh, th that decade and, and 25 years after that. So. I'm just not sure we saw the signs of that happening today. So what stocks do you like, David? What, what, what should we be looking? Where, where well, they're, they're, I focus on industries, and then my portfolio managers pick the stocks right. and their various strategies. Uh, I'm most overweight uh, healthcare, both big biotech and pharmaceuticals and, and big banks. Uh, then we're, we're dabbling in a few other areas like aerospace and defense and oil services where we're overweight. Uh, but we're also underweight. A lot of things that we think are going to be uh, weighed on by the, um, the goods and the manufacturing recession that we see ahead. Materials, much of industrials, uh, we're still cautious on semiconductors, um, and uh, all of the, everything consumer, consumer discretionary, auto, retailing of, of both brick and mortar, and even internet retailing. Lori, how does that match up with you? For example, semiconductors, do you have a different view on semiconductors? So I think with semiconductors, what we're seeing is that basically nobody's taking earnings revisions up, earnings estimates up right now, and historically, when nobody's taking earnings revisions up, 
or earnings estimates up, uh, it's usually pretty good 12-month forward signal in the market. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to turn around today. We have seen some of the you know, price action improve there a bit lately, but it's really a longer-term kind of contrarian-type call. Um, I would say, though, I think Dave and I are mostly on the same page on a lot of stuff. You know, we like the banks. Um, I think we both still like small caps at this point in time. And, you know, I, I'm probably, you know, a little more cautious on the defensive areas of the market. I think things like staples and utilities still very expensive. You've had some room left in healthcare valuations, but that's starting to creep up as well. Um, so I'm so really... not as enthusiastic about healthcare as maybe David is. I, I'm still overweight, but I'm getting a little concerned about it. I mean, frankly, just because coming into this reporting season, we were getting close to peak valuation on that sector as well. And now we've knocked it down a peg or two. That, there were some rough earnings um, with this sector, but I think we have to tread cautiously on the defensives. I like small caps. I like banks because they are typically areas that do well coming out of a recession. You've got really cheap valuations. In the case of small caps, we've got a bucket of work showing that they're pricing in a recession already. In financials, I think it's more of an earnings resiliency thesis, more of a domestic play. Um, but I think it's probably time, in my estimation, to start looking for some of those recovery trades. To what extent have the projections of earnings taken into account inflation? Because that really is a margin pressure issue, isn't it? Well, so what our modeling has shown on inflation, that if we, you know, if you sort of think about how they play into an earnings model, for example, um, I see, see positive correlations with revenues. So the inflationary backdrop has really been goosing revenues in S&P 500 companies. Mm. Um, we find that when inflation comes down, it doesn't really help margins all that much, but bringing inflation down is going to pull revenues down. Um, wages are actually, you know, kind of the more important uh, factor within margins. So one of the reasons why we've been so cautious on earnings next year as a whole is because we are baking in that moderation and in inflation. It's going to pull the revenues down. It's not going to help the margins as much. But I do think a lot of people who cover stocks don't understand the revenue dynamic and don't appreciate that the impact on margins isn't going to be as big as they think. Where are you on earnings going forward? What are you projecting? My estimate for next year is 220. And I expect this year to finish up at about 223, 224, thanks to energy. So, so you're down, but just a down little bit. Down slightly. Um, the average recession, but we're expecting smaller than average, causes a 15 to 20 percent decline in profits. But usually, more than half of that decline in profits is from financials and energy. Energy is smaller than it's been in the past, although it's growing uh, every day. Uh, and we think banks will be fine because we're not expecting credit costs to surge. Thanks to Juliet Sally, Danny Berger, and Romaine Bostic. Coming up, the United States is getting a new Congress. However, the votes ultimately add up with an opportunity to rethink a policy for sustainable growth. We're going to talk with former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Glenn Hubbard of Columbia, about what a sensible Republican plan might look like. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The U.S. midterm elections may not be fully resolved yet, but President Biden didn't wait to talk about whether they point to a rethink of his policies. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. Do you 
to give us his views of where economic policy might be headed. Welcome now Glenn Hubbard. He's Dean Emeritus at the Columbia Business School, and he was the chair of President George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. He's also author of The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake. So, Dean Hubbard, thank you so much for being back with us. My pleasure. Really want to talk to you because there is this question, where do we go from here? I mean, we don't yet know exactly what happened with the midterms. We've got a pretty good hunch, probably a narrow majority for the Republicans in the House. Quite possibly Democrats will hold a 50-50 sort of split in the Senate. What should Republicans do? If you're up on Capitol Hill, is there a sustainable economic policy for growth they could pursue? I think there is, and in fact, there's a pivot for the president, too. You know, listening to him just now reminds one of the aphorism of uh, learning nothing and forgetting nothing. <laughs> it's time for a pivot. And I think for Republicans, GOP is instructive, growth, opportunity, and participation. There's a way to develop bridges, to take people, take communities, take more people to the economy that will be in the future. We've done this before in the country. We can do it again. And it doesn't have a partisan label. Anybody could grab it, but it's especially apt for the GOP. So let's talk about walls and bridges, uh, which you wrote about in your book. It strikes me, and maybe I'm not uh, uh, being careful enough in listening to it, I hear a lot more about walls and bridges, I think, these days. A lot more about protecting against change, perhaps both on the Democrats and the Republicans, than about how do we embrace change and get ready for it. You do. I mean, if you start with the growth part, change is important. There is no model or theory of growth that doesn't involve change. So we need change. The question is, how do you bring everybody along? And that's what we hadn't been doing so well uh, in the past few decades. Populism comes, uh, embraces that, and we need to address it. And so to do that, you really have to help individuals with training and education. You have to help communities to bring people along. Can we afford to do it? Because oh, sure. we don't have zero interest rates anymore. Oh, sure. Uh, in the book, I outline everything from community college block grants to aid to communities to reform of the earned income tax credit to support work. All of that is probably about $100 billion a year. That's real money. But compared to what we've been doing, compared to student loan relief alone that was $400 billion at a stroke of a pen, we can afford to do this. You mentioned earned income tax credit. A lot of people think that that's a, a good reform that could be pursued. What about the child tax credit? Because that's something the Democrats badly want. They wanted to put through. Republicans don't like it so much. Is that a constructive thing to allow people to re-enter the workforce in a positive way? I think it could be. And it's part of what could be a compromise package. You know, If you want to allow more people to come back to work, you have to lose and all constraints on work. And I think the child tax credit could play a very powerful role there if it's accompanied by rewarding work, which is what the earned income tax credit could do very well. Well, what about that point specifically? As I understand it, at least, one of the issues for Republicans is if you're going to give these breaks, you should actually sort of require work. It should be conditioned upon getting to work rather than just giving people the money. Is that right? It should be, but that's a feature, not a bug, in the sense that participation in the economy brings dignity dignity, it brings honor, and it brings support for the economic system. So that ought to be one of our goals. The question is really supporting work and making work pay. The EITC, or an income tax credit, among other things, can do that. So uh, as I understand from you economists, there are two ways to grow. One is more people working, and the other is more productivity. Uh, ideally, you get both of those. Talk about more people working. Some of them are living in the United States right now. What about immigration? Is there a way to really address immigration, which is really divided 
divided the parties. It's a problem we have to address at some point in a way that would actually give us more people constructively in the workforce. It's super important. Immigration has always been one of America's great strengths. And the immigration story is really two parts in policy. One is about very high-skilled immigration. And there, there should be no doubt we should want every scientist, doctor, business person, entrepreneur in the world who wants to be here should be here. The political debate over low-skilled immigration is harder, but rather than saying no to low-skilled immigration, how about yes to training support and helping more people come along? I think that would ease the political uh, dilemma. Have we ever done that training support well? And by the way, should it be private sector or public sector or a combination of both? The truth is we have. So if you think back to the 19th century, the whole land-grant college movement, which I build on for community colleges, is exactly that. The GI Bill with President Franklin Roosevelt after the Second World War. We have done this. And yes, it should have heavy involvement of the private sector. Throughout the country, we've got great partnerships of business people with community colleges, with communities, because they know where the jobs are. Fascinating. Great to have you with us. This Wall and Bridge is a really powerful way of thinking about it. Many thanks to Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Coming up, we're going to wrap up the week with our special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week here on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're delighted to have our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, back with us now on Wall Street Week. So, Larry, it was a big week on a lot of fronts. Let's start with the CPI numbers that came out. They certainly got the market's attention. What did you make of those CPI numbers? Are they as encouraging as some people seem to think? I think they were good, they were, they were good numbers, 
but one number is never decisive. And there were a lot of special factors in these numbers, some of which will be reversed. Particular, as always, Team Transitory only focuses on the things that are likely to come down in the future, not the things that are likely to go up in the future. I don't think apparel prices will keep going down so fast. I don't think we've really got structural disinflation in uh, medical care. But this was a good number, and the market was right to respond positively. Whether the magnitude of the reaction was right, I think that's very much uh, in question. There was another number yesterday, which was the Atlanta Fed number on wages, and that was showing continued strong wage inflation. And I don't see a way, as long as inflation is running in the 5-6 range, that we're getting to target. So. I think the people who declared victory on the basis of this uh, number yesterday were overreacting. But look, it certainly was an encouraging number. But we had similar encouraging numbers in March and similar encouraging numbers in July. And one swallow didn't make a spring uh, then. And so I think we've... Uh, got to do what Jay Powell has said he's going to do, which is be vigilant and integrate uh, all the data looking forward. And that was my question, actually. We know how the markets reacted. The question is, how will the Fed react? We have a little time till that December meeting. At the same time, given what you've seen so far, it can change. Do you think that the Fed should be varying its path one iota? Some people are now saying instead of 75, it should be 50, for example, in December. Well, I think the market's been expecting 50 for some time is the most likely case, and I don't see a reason uh, to change uh, from uh, that expectation. I don't think you can make judgments based on a single month's uh, data. There was a very substantial adjustment in markets' expectations of what the Fed would do, and I wonder whether that a change quite that large of more than one full uh, move, one full 25 basis point move, was warranted on the basis of uh, just this number. But it may well prove to be appropriate given what we see uh, in, uh, the, in the future. Larry, how much more difficult are the markets making the Fed's job? Because the financial conditions loosened dramatically in response to the CPI numbers, the most since March of 2020 when they announced $2 trillion in fiscal stimulus. You have to look at both the Fed funds rate and at the overall uh, level of financial conditions. To some extent, uh, I don't I think these financial conditions indices are misleading because when the stock market goes up, they call that an improvement in financial conditions, but it may just be a change towards more optimism about uh, the economy. So I'm not that taken with the financial conditions indices like the ones that come out of Goldman Sachs that give significant weight uh, to the stock market uh, or to credit spreads in the overall assessment, because I think in some sense they're not just reflecting what the Fed does, they're reflecting changing views about the economy. Uh, Larry, arguably the other big news this week with the midterm elections, which, by the way, aren't really fully finalized yet because we don't know the results, including who controls the House and the Senate. But at this point in the process, what do you make of these midterms? The one thing I learned was, once again, the people don't pay that much attention to the pollsters or, by the way, the media. <laughs> David, look, I'm, I'm quite encouraged. Uh, the center is holding. 
Uh, if you look at people on the extreme of either party, they actually underperformed quite badly. The, there was more ticket splitting as people voted for one Democrat and one Republican, rejecting the rad more radical uh, candidates. The swing towards uh, Democrats came from independents um, and came from more Republicans voting Democratic. I think the reaction to the radical Supreme Court decision was actually a substantial part of uh, this uh, story that's probably cautionary um, for Democrats because it's not always going to uh, be, that, be that way. But look, we're not having people in the streets fighting over the results of elections. Candidates who lose, even very radical candidates who lose, are, uh, con are conceding. I think this was an election that suggested some movement back towards the center of the country holding. What message do you think the White House should take away from this, particularly with respect to economic policy? Uh, is this time for a mid-course correction? Are there some lessons in here for the White House? And by the way, should they even take a look at who the, who's on the economic team? Is it time to revamp that? I think they've got very good people. I don't think the people are, uh, are, the, are the issue. It's a very experienced uh, uh, team. Inevitably, the, over time, administrations have uh, turnover. Look, I think the country is governed best when it's governed uh, from uh, the center and governed with uh, moderation. Nobody's going back to three and a half trillion dollar uh, new deals. That's uh, not on the table, and I think it's appropriate, given inflation, that nothing like that be on the table. I think there's a lot we can do to bring down the price of energy by promoting energy production of all kinds, renewable and uh, non-renewable. Uh, non I think there's a lot uh, that the administration can do and will do uh, with respect to technology, particularly uh, in uh, the semiconductor uh, area. It's a big challenge to actually build infrastructure out well in a way that's going to contribute uh, to reducing bottlenecks uh, in our economy. I would like to see more partnership between uh, business and government. And frankly, if we're going to build out the necessary energy infrastructure I don't around the world, I don't think uh, there's any alternative. So I think that the administration has uh, a real opportunity now to move to an implementation uh, phase. Larry, one other big development, uh, globally at least this week, was the next climate summit in COP27 over in Sharm el-Sheikh. Are we making progress on the climate or not? It seems sometimes like they just get together and talk. Yeah, that's what, yes. I, I, I agree with that. But David, I think uh, more is happening in uh, the laboratory and less is happening in the conference room. The good news is that tremendous progress is being made in all sorts of uh, 
technologies that point towards uh, renewable uh, energy. There are some really exciting developments with respect to batteries and storage that enables renewables because it's not always uh, windy or uh, sunny. So I think, ironically, even though there's less political progress than one would have hoped, I actually think we're in a better place with respect to the problem than one might have expected a decade ago because of the progress in technology. Okay, Larry, that was very helpful. Once again, that is Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Looking for opportunity wherever you can find it. In a time of market downturns. Investors are looking at portfolio losses that remind them of 2008. And runaway inflation. What matters is the Fed saying we've got to get inflation back down. And more than a little political uncertainty. Of course, we'll have to see the final results of these midterms. It's We were looking at razor thin margins right now. All of us have to be even more resourceful in looking for new opportunities. Former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney wants us to find them in sustainable energy. A lot of the answer to energy security problems that have been exposed by Russia's illegal war have to do with sustainability. Citadel CEO Ken Griffin thinks he's found opportunities in moving to Florida. I'm going to say something that's like, uh, you know, that's going to be thrown out of here. Taxes were not part of our decision to come to Florida. Because when you've got great schools, when you've got a great environment, when your streets are safe and clean, you've got a place where people want to live and call home. And not surprisingly, the CEO of Delta Airlines has found opportunities in travel. We're seeing an incredible amount of demand that's continuing. It's, it's been in place for most of this year. Uh, we're looking at the upcoming holiday period. It looks very, very strong. Uh, and then, then there's the irrepressible Simon Cowell, a record producer, international television personality, and creator of reality series like The X Factor and America's Got Talent. Cowell can take credit for discovering hit makers like Fifth Harmony and One Direction. Cowell's latest discovery? Well, it is the bond market, where he just raised $125 million selling bonds backed by his Got Talent TV shows. Right now, I feel like James Bond. But the all-time winner of the Golden Opportunity Award goes, at least this week, to the holder of the single lottery ticket sold in California that earned for its lucky holder, get this, $2 billion, $40 million. And it wasn't only the winner who got some opportunity. The man who sold the ticket, Joe, from Joe's Service Center, is walking away with a cool million dollars as well. I will share it with the family, with uh, whatever I need it, with my kids, my grandchildren. I have uh, 11 grandchildren. Now that is what I call opportunity. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.